Welcome to the Multifamily Mavericks Podcast, hosted by Josiah Smelser and Megan Greathouse. This is your one-stop shop for building and growing your multifamily business. Join us on a weekly basis as we crack the code to multifamily investing and scale up to financial freedom. And now your hosts, Josiah and Megan. Before we get started, let's take this opportunity to get connected. You can find me on Instagram at Daily Real Estate Investor. You can find Megan on Instagram at Part Time Empire and our show on Instagram at Multifamily Mavericks. We're also both on LinkedIn. And if you're a multifamily investor, a multifamily syndicator, a mom and pop owner, want to partner with us on a deal, or even have a deal you want to sell, get in touch with us. We want to hear from you. Shoot us a message through Instagram or LinkedIn and let's get to know each other. What is up, fellow multifamily mavericks? This is Megan Greathouse here today with Josiah Smelzer. We are excited to bring you another episode and to keep learning and growing with you. Josiah, how are you doing today? Man, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm pumped about this episode, Megan. Um, and I'm also excited about multifamily. Always, always. It is exciting and sometimes frustrating, but <laughs> mostly exciting. <laughs> I think we've been talking about our, our shared frustrations, trying to find that next deal. You know, that's always, that always feels like a major roadblock, but you just got to keep learning. You got to keep growing. You got to keep doing over and over and over again um, and tweaking as you go. So how's that going for you, Josiah? Uh, it's been good. You know, I'm still, I'm still hunting my first multifamily deal. So I've got 20 doors in the one to four family space, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to cut that off. You know, the, the easy thing to do would be go back and keep doing these one to four family deals because they're just easy for me at this point. Right. And that's my comfort zone. Right. But my, I'm trying to push myself out of my comfort zone and track down one of these bigger deals. The goal has been a 30 unit or larger. To be honest, you know, I'm okay with I'm okay with something 10 units or bigger. I, I picked 30 because, you know, I own 20 doors trying to move up, um, get something a little bit bigger. But I'm after the traction and the progress at this point, as opposed to just a number of doors. But the goal is financial freedom, right? So yep. anything that's going to move that needle, I'm good with. And I think it's just mm-hmm. a matter of time. We've also got all this wild COVID stuff going on, you know, I know. recorded in... July of 2020. And um, there's just some weird stuff going on in the multifamily market right now. It's going to be really interesting to see all that play out. You know, they're, they're talking about um, the, there was, there was uh, a freeze put on evictions that, land, that landlords could do. That freeze ended recently. They're talking about extending that now. And, you know, they're also looking at a second stimulus check, which obviously affects the tenant's ability to pay. And there's, I think there's a lot of owners that are thinking about selling that aren't sure what they're going to do. And it's been a seller's market. It's been hard to find deals. I'm interested to see what's going to happen in the next six months to see if maybe there's more deals floating up that we could be buying. Yeah, for sure. But I think you're coming at it from the right perspective. I've been in the same boat where I've gotten leads on two families and four families that look pretty solid. But I know that if I stop to buy one of those, it's going to get me off track with my goal of buying a 16 plus unit by the end of the year. So I, I've told my agent, please don't send me those anymore. I can't even look <laughs> at them. I've got to keep my blinders on and stay yeah. focused on this multifamily. I do actually have a, it's a 14 family. So just two units shy of, of the goal I set Sweet. Um, that it came up through some direct mail I've done. And I think it could potentially be a winner. The one thing that I'm weighing is it's more of a C-class area. So kind of the management side of it, how, sure. how much do I, I want to worry about um, the, the more management intensive buildings versus some of the kind of more B-class area properties that I'm looking at. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm calling the seller back again today after we get off here and I'm going to see what he's thinking. He wouldn't quite name a price up front. So I'm <laughs> going to try to wiggle that out of him this time. And uh, I'll, I'll let you all know, know how that goes. Yeah, I, yeah, I would... Um we went through this process with an off-market seller that wouldn't give us a price up front. And we thought we knew what they wanted. And we went, we spent a decent amount of time on it. And then when we got down to the end, we found out they wanted way more than we originally thought. Yep. So I would, I would suggest getting that price out of them as soon as you can, because you don't want to spin your wheels. So For hopefully sure. it's, hopefully it's something you can do as well. So that, but that's exciting. Yeah. You're fine. You're kicking up stuff off market. That's awesome. 
Yeah, a little bit. We'll see. We'll see if yeah. any of it can actually uh, end with a, a contract and a closed Sweet. purchase. But well, uh, if you get it, if but, you get it under contract, we got we got to talk about it on here. For sure, for sure, we will. But before that, let's hear from Ashley Wilson. She's our guest today. Um, And I'm super excited for you all to hear about what she's been doing. Not only has she had a thriving clipping business that she's been in with her father, but um, she and her husband, but primarily Ashley, have been investing in much larger multifamily deals for a little while now as well. Um, And I was so excited to hear from a female because as we all probably know, this is a pretty male-dominated industry, and she's just rocking it, not only as a female in real estate in general and in multifamily, but she takes on construction management of many of her deals. And that is definitely not a place where you see women the most active in real estate. So I was so excited to hear from Ashley. Uh, But Josiah, from your perspective, what did you love about this podcast? Yeah. Well, first of all, I just love Ashley. She's a good friend of mine. I met Ashley um, about a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago, ago at the real estate mastermind that Brandon Turner did in Hawaii. And Ashley and I got to be good friends. Um, and it was fun. It's been fun watching her progress and traction as a real estate investor. And she's just done a number of multifamily deals. I really admire the way she's gone about doing her business and she's also and building her business. And she's also now got another one under contract. She's doing some stuff on bigger pockets live where she's, you know, giving tips and tricks on how you can do multifamily investing and things that will help you succeed as a multifamily investor. So, um, and we're going to give information on how you can uh, connect with her, but she's just a really great person to learn from and connect with. And I know you're going to get a ton of value out of this episode. So Megan, go ahead and, um, uh, take us into the episode. Yes. So one more thing, she is about to launch her first book. I believe she said it's titled The Only Woman in the Room. So probably interesting for everyone, but especially for me and the other females on female multifamily mavericks on here with us. Uh, look up her book. It's, it's launching August 31st. Uh, but as a sneak peek to that, let's get into this interview and talk with Ashley. Let's go. Guys, we're super pumped to have Ashley Wilson on the podcast today. Ashley is a good friend of mine. We met at the real estate mastermind in Hawaii that Brandon Turner uh, put it on. I guess it was a year ago now, Ashley. Was that? Yeah, last July. Time flies. But (laughs) um, man, Ashley is crushing it in real estate and and she's doing apartment deals now. Um, And she's got a number of doors that she owns. She is a wheeler and dealer and I'm super excited. We're super excited to be having you on the podcast today, Ashley. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. So let's dive in. Love, love to hear your story on how you got started. I mean, I, I know you and heard your Bigger Pockets episode long before I ever met you. So I kind of knew some background on you. But I guess give us a high level um, background on how you got started investing and how you ended up moving over into multifamily. And before we get going on that, like, tell us where you live. And, and that can, and anything about your family you'd be willing to share. Absolutely. So I live in the suburbs of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and approximately 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, my now husband, um, we were discussing where we should put or invest our money. And, um, he is very financially savvy. He's Canadian. I find that Canadians by and large are a little bit more financially knowledgeable, um, than uh, the average American. I'm not trying to insult Americans, but they're definitely uh, more financially savvy uh, for sure. So he did a lot of research and he kept stumbling back onto real estate. That's actually how we found Bigger Pockets in the first place. We found it about 12 years ago. And we just jumped head first into the knowledge base. Both of us are very academic minded people. So we need a real solid foundation before we can take action. I know some people like to just take action and learn as they go along. We are not an analysis paralysis, but we need kind of a hybrid. So we needed that knowledge base first. And then we started with a, um, a house hack slash Airbnb Um, so that's how we first got started in real estate and we house hacked up until, uh, three months ago. So our entire relationship is house has, we've done house hacking, um, for anyone, any listener who doesn't know what house hacking is, it basically means you either 
set or rent a portion of your house or your whatever, your duplex, triplex, it doesn't matter, rent a portion of your living space and it offsets your expenses. And we have done that through dating, engagement, marriage, children, you know, the whole gambit. And over that course of the past 10 years, in parallel, we did short-term rentals, long-term rentals in the very beginning, and then we transitioned into flipping. My father is a general contractor, and we knew we could leverage his knowledge in building a flipping business. So my husband's career took us overseas for four years, and while we were overseas, my, my father and I built the flipping business um, from the ground up. We still have that flipping business today. We focus primarily in higher end flips on the main line, what's considered the main line. So a very historic area in the suburbs of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So we focus on early 1900s to 1960 properties by and large and do full gut rehab. So because of my father's knowledge um, and also me growing up with my father as a huge influence on my life, um, that's how I got the construction background knowledge. And then my mother was in project management. So that's how I got the organization systemization and automation mindset. So those two coupled together have lent itself really well on multiple businesses, not even just real estate related, but specifically within real estate. And then a few years back, um, we knew we wanted to get into multifamily while we were living abroad, but multifamily is a relationship-based business. Everyone says that, but I don't think people really understand how big of a relationship-based business it is until they're knee-deep in it. It is not like single family at all. It is heavily reliant on who you know, how frequently you talk to them and how well you know someone. So we took that approach um, when we moved back to the States and really developed relationships with people in multifamily to build out our multifamily business. So that's where we're at today. We have a kind of a dual approach. We have the single family flipping business still going on, and then we have the multifamily business. Wow. Sounds like you have been very busy. That's incredible. So I like what you mentioned about the relationship side of this business and in multifamily. Um, I am early in my my career of switching from two and four units to larger multifamily, and I'm seeing that right out the gate. You know, do you have any kind of tricks that you use to really get in um, with some of the right people, get to know the right people? And as someone who maybe didn't have larger multifamily, even if you had real estate experience, how did you build some credibility to get you into the larger multifamily? So a few things. Um, there's a lot of excellent questions that you just asked. Um, the first being um, in terms of how to get there. If your goal is to get into large multifamily, there are a lot of different approaches that people tell you is the path of progress to get to large multifamily. Some people take a stacking method, which is like you start with two, a duplex, then you go to a quad, then you go to an eightplex. You know, there is that method. There's no knocking on that method. There's then there's the other method where you just jump in head first and you buy a large apartment building and you build up a team. And typically it's a newbie team um, to tackle something like that. Um, and then there's a third approach, and I don't know if it's used as common because I don't hear a lot of people talking about doing this approach, is you partner with a more experienced team and you really put in a lot of sweat equity at the beginning and you're probably your return on actual dollars is not high if you're going to just look at it on an ROI perspective monetarily. But if you look at it on terms of knowledge and op, um, opportunity, your ROI is greater than you can even measure. And you just have to believe in that, that process. And I think what it comes down to is understanding your bandwidth. Um, so your capacity to deliver on all of those different levels. If you're someone who can put in sweat equity without getting a monetary return, you're either in a W-2 that allows you the flexibility to do sweat equity on a partnership, a more experienced partnership, uh, where you don't need a paycheck coming in from your partnership on the multifamily. That is by far the fastest way to get into multifamily, larger multifamily, but it's also the most difficult because obviously you need some sort of income in the process. 
Um, more common is obviously the stacking method. Um, and that's because people at the same time of stacking are also transitioning typically from a W-2 or uh, some other income source. And you get to a threshold in which your numbers of doors offset your need for the um, income, and then you can focus full-time on building that method. Um, and then in terms of doing like a hybrid model where you partner with someone probably less experienced or, you know, maybe of the same experience as, as you have, you're really learning as you go along. And all of those methods have time as the underlying variable in terms of the cost of time and how long it takes to get to your ultimate goal. I would say that there is a lot of sexiness around large multifamily, but I know a lot of people who make a lot more than me and they have way less doors than me and they are not doing large multifamily. They're focusing on smaller um, acquisitions with higher yields. And because of the markets that they're in, there's less overhead, there's less... Um, you know, a uh, division of uh, net profits, they're actually making a lot more than I am doing, you know, 10x the, the number. I really hate when people lead off by unit count. I don't think that it substantiates um, their experience, um, their credibility, anything. In fact, I have learned more about one single topic, which is multifamily in the past year and a half, two years than I have ever learned in probably any, um, you know, area of education in that same given time, even, even extrapolating that to five years, double the amount of time. But I've also learned during that time that there are a lot of people who lead with unit count that don't really know what they're doing. Um, so because of that, because of being exposed to all of these different people that you know, may or may not really understand multifamily, I would just be really careful on who you partner with because ultimately you could be working against yourself. And at the end of the day, if your goal is financial freedom, there's a lot of different ways you can achieve that. And, um, you know, your family, your own livelihood is going to be the same, whether it's attached with a thousand unit count, or if it's attached with 10 unit count, it doesn't matter. If at the end of the day, you're able to achieve that why that everyone has behind investing in real estate, that's the ultimate goal. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you point that out because I think as we talk about things like scaling, it can seem sexy and or like it's a natural next step, but you have to really understand the purpose behind it. So maybe Ashley, tell us a little bit about um, your why and, and what's led you down this path and what brought you to multifamily. The initial uh, attraction for me to real estate and to everything I've done in my entire life was growing up, my bo both of my parents were uh, working class. My dad was self-employed with his general contracting business. And my mom was fortunate to work for a family friend for over 30 years that allowed her the flexibility and my father the flexibility to support my brother and I in every single aspect of our lives. So they were at all of our piano performances or sporting events. And because of that support, I knew no matter what I did in life, I always wanted to be there for my kids because it's the thing I valued most about what my parents did for me growing up. So in all honesty, I didn't really care how I got to it. I didn't care if it came through. Originally, I worked in pharmaceuticals. I worked in clinical research and development. And I thought my goal was going to just be to be the CEO of like a Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline. And to be honest with you, that was my original goal. My original goal was to be the CEO of GlaxoSmithKline. I wanted to be the youngest CEO of GlaxoSmithKline. Um, and in all honesty, I don't think I've ever shared this with anyone, but that was my ultimate goal. And I was fast-tracked. I was literally working minimum 80-hour weeks and we waited to have children later in life. So I work 24 seven. I didn't, I gave up everything to be able to work and build this life because ultimately what I thought is I got to a certain point, I made X amount of dollars and then I could just retire and then, you know, spend time with my family. I didn't realize at that time I was young and I was naive that there would have been an overlap when I started having children and it would have, um, definitely been challenging to balance those two. And I don't know if I ever would have been able to achieve my goal without sacrificing time for my family. So when I started in real estate, 
I learned very early on that that was possible at a whole different scale, working smarter, not harder. And because of that, it, it it's like a drug. Like to me, real estate's like a drug. Like to me, it's like, it literally gives me the time that I've always wanted. So I just want more and more time. I don't want to ever be in a point where I, you know, take my foot off the gas and then I relax and I enjoy the moment. And then I have to co- go back and then really hit full throttle again. So to me, I like the fact that real estate, especially multifamily, sets you up for building wealth and not as much in terms of getting you rich. I like that aspect of multifamily more so than other aspects. I also like not paying taxes, in all honesty. So <laughs> that's another benefit that multifamily provides that flipping does definitely does not provide. It's actually right. the complete opposite. Very cool. And, you know, the why is such a big part of the motivating factor for everyone. And, you know, I've seen this thrown around a number of times, but if you're doing something to just get rich, like you're saying, you said there's different and difference in wealthy and rich, like wealthy is a freedom with your time. In my opinion, um, rich means you have a lot of money coming in, but uh, you know, in the situation where you're the CEO of this business, it requires all your time to run the business, right? You're the CEO, you're there running the, the big entity, it requires your time on task. The beautiful thing about multifamily is you can set up the systems and it will run itself and you have time with your freedom, which is my definition of wealthy, right? So um, that's what I love about multifamily. And you've obviously been absolutely knocking it out of the park. Tell us how many units, how many doors do you own right now, Ashley? So I'm passively invested in 101 and then I have 349 that I am a general partner and active manager on. And then I have currently 150 under contract. Very cool. So did you start off investing on the limited partner side, get some experience there and then go do the GP side on your own deals or how did, how did that all take shape? If you look at it from a calendar perspective, that is exactly what happened. But in reality, the past investment got funded maybe to actually, I think it happened maybe a month before the GP, clo- my deal that I GP closed on. It just so happened that they kind of happened in parallel. So typically I say that I invested passively first because technically that deal closed first. Um, but it did happen in parallel. We had some funds that we wanted to place in a passive investment. And, um, then we had some additional funds we wanted to do on the active investment. And at the time, the two properties, they were completely different. So one was in a, is stabilized performing asset in a very stable market. Another one was an upside market, um, you know, with a lot of potential and, um, a value add property. So in terms, and they were in two different, obviously they were in two different markets. So in terms of us, the whole reason we believe in real estate is we believe that it gives you the opportunity to really diversify your real estate or your investing strategy across either multiple asset classes or within the same asset class, but within multiple sectors of that asset class. And that provides a lot of diversification to hedge your bet against all different factors because one thing that I was literally eye-opening to me, and I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but people always talk about our economy and market, where we are in our market. Um, you know, if we're in a recession or if we're um, in a hyper supply, you know, all different stages of the market as if the entire U.S. is under the same <laughs> point at the same yep. time. And one thing that I didn't realize was that I did realize that different markets varied on where they were in the cycle. But what I didn't realize is that a market could be in totality in a recession, but, um, you know, and a specific asset class can be in a different phase of the market cycle. So market cycles also vary by asset class. And that was very eye-opening to me and to really be strategic in where you invest, not just taking it as like a blanket statement that the entire country right now is in a recession, because in all honesty, that's not the case. We tried to be strategic about what we were investing in. And that is all based on where each asset was within its own market cycle. So 
In terms of the one property, it was in a different market cycle. It was in a stabilized performing um, uh, location. And it also, in terms of where it was in the market cycle, it wasn't nearing a recession. And then on the other um, side, the other property we invested in was actually coming out of a recession. So it's kind of funny to think about because, you know, as an economy, we were talking about, oh, the U.S. is near a recession, but this particular market was actually coming out of a recession and had already been in a recession. And, you know, that's something that a lot of people don't talk about. They just talk about our economy as a whole across the U.S. And um, that's something that is very advantageous when you can invest out of state or you have that comfort level to invest out of state because you can really time market cycles and um, use that as like your, you know, your X power um, or X factor, you know, your X factor in terms of uh, your investing strategy. Yeah, I love that. And the beautiful thing about real estate is that it's, it's relatively slow moving, right? So you have the ability to figure out where in this market cycle you are in the market you're looking at investing in. And this is, this is something I've been harping on for a while. People will say, oh, there's just no deals and there's no deals where I live. And I'm like, well, where are you looking where you live? You know, um, because there's probably little, there's probably spots where you live that are really, it's a really great time to invest there. And there's probably spots where you live that it's a really awful time to invest there. So, and, and some markets are just overheated in general, right? And it's just really expensive and you get priced out. But you know, you hear people in like, before I started investing heavily in Fort Worth, Texas, everybody was telling me it's too, it's too expensive. You can't invest there. Well, I've had a lot of deals there. You know what I mean? So what you're saying is so, so spot on, like there are opportunities, like know specifically where you're investing and you can really find outside, outsized returns and opportunities there. So let's talk about something that always fascinates me. And it's, it's very applicable to me and my journey to Megan and her journey, we're, we're getting into multifamily investing. Tell us how you got your first deal done on the GP side and how you went about doing that. So the excellent thing about multifamily is it's a team sport. I always relate it back to sports and on a sports team, take any, any sport. Um, there is, I mean, you can even take an individual sport like tennis or golf you still have a coach, you still have a trainer, you still have, um, maybe you have a masseuse, maybe you have a, um, a therapist, like a, um, someone who's mentally coaching you to be, you know, create mental toughness. There are all these different, or, and a fitness um, instructor, not just the technique. So in, in sports in general, there are all these different players and they are all experts on specific techniques or an aspect that makes the entire team be able to take down whatever they face, whether it be an opponent or longevity or be able to, you know, just to do multiple tournaments in a row. And the same thing is applicable in multifamily. So in multifamily, you have all these different players and they all have a different skill set. It is virtually impossible and we have kind of a pretty significant team and I'm still complaining that I don't have enough time and I wish I had an expert on X and Y and Z um, to take down this large multifamily property. So in terms of how I was able to leverage that knowledge, leverage the fact that you have to be an expert in all these different areas is something that I mentioned very early on, which is that I have a construction coupled with project management mindset. So I understand construction. I understand multifamily. And by and large, the people that go into multifamily are not typically coming from a construction background. Um, so in large multifamily, at least. You have people who are um, coming from corporate. You have people who... Um, may or may not have passively invested on other deals or have heard about investing in other deals. But typically, that is really um, the, the segue into multifamily. And of course, there are people who, you know, I've done single family and then, you know, done the stacking method, <clears throat> excuse me, and they get into multifamily that way too. But to have someone who has construction knowledge on your team is obviously very valuable, especially when you're executing multi-million dollar capital expenditure plans. 
And that's how I was able to get my foot in the door. So I had a relationship with someone who was transitioning into multifamily and had historically passively invested on multifamily deals and now was taking down his first deal. And he did not have construction knowledge. And I partnered with him and I said, okay, this would be an excellent opportunity for us to work together and I can handle construction management. And that actually ended up transitioning into um, construction management and asset management because he, um, in terms of bandwidth, when he took down this deal, he was like, oh, okay, I have all these other deals lined up and he wanted to focus on acquisitions. So then that ended up falling on the asset management side. It actually fell into my lap. And originally, you know, I was doing it to be a team player and I didn't have the foresight to say, this would be a really good way for me to position myself as like a, an asset slash construction manager. And because they work <clears throat> so hand in hand together, it, it lends itself well in terms of partnering with other people. So that's really how I got started on my first one. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. That's awesome. And so that first one, how many units was that? So the active one, the one I was a general partner on was 124 units. Got it. And what was, can you tell us a little bit about the, the work to be done in the construction that you were managing in that project? So it was a value-add property. Um, we were renovating the units to get our rent bumps that we had projected in our performa. And also too, while we were under contract, interesting enough, um, one of the buildings burnt to the ground. So, Ooh. oh yeah. So, um, at first we were like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Like, are we still <laughs> going to move forward with the deal? But you quickly learn as long as everyone's okay. I should say that with a caveat, you know, make sure everyone's safe at which everyone was, um, insurance claims can end up being the most lucrative situation and beneficial situation for you because you were planning on renovating that, those units anyway. Well, now the insurance company is covering it. So we rebuilt, I led construction on a rebuild of an entire um, building, um, which, you know, obviously has its own challenges. But at the same time, like to have that experience on my first deal, we also had a major plumbing leak with another insurance claim. I mean, I got a lot of experience on um, that first deal and then it's lent itself really well because then, you know, when talking with other people who've been in multifamily for 10 plus years, they haven't even had half the number of things happen um, that I've had happen just in this short tenure I've had in multifamily. So it has been um, a pretty good situation. There's always, in every challenge, there's always opportunities. It's a matter of just how you look at a situation and how you make the most of it. Absolutely. And I, I want to dig into that a little bit further in a moment, but I want to pause real quick and ask you something somewhat from a personal curiosity. But as a fellow female, I look at you and it's awesome to see what you're doing. And I also hear that you're kind of running the side that maybe seems even more male dominated uh, than real estate in general. And real estate is fairly male dominated, especially in this larger multifamily space. So can you share with us a little bit for, for my benefit and any other women listening, um, how has it been for you being a female in a male dominated industry and taking on things like the construction management, which I think I would think can be even more male dominated? Um, so great question. Um, it is a very male dominated field. Real estate in general is typically male dominated. Um, but once you get into multifamily, it's more male dominated. And then when you get on the construction side, it's almost exclusively male. I, in all honesty, I do not know another woman leading construction management and multifamily. I wish I did. Um, but I don't. So this is something I talk about often because I would love to have more women in this space, more women in construction management, more women in... There's actually a lot of women in asset management, but not as many on um, deal leading. They're more so you know, um, running asset management, but they're not sourcing deals. Um, so I think, you know, speaking to what I just said, that every challenge has its own opportunity. I think that um, you know, I'm not tooting my own horn. It is what it is. I think I 
position myself as um, being a memorable person coming looking for multifamily because I am a woman. And I think men, when I don't know them at first, when I talk to brokers, they're quick to dismiss me. And then when I, you know, speak their language and also um, just dive into my experience, all of a sudden they're ready to listen and they're ready to give me their, you know, short list of you know, uh, off-market deals that they have. And I think because um, this is something in all honesty that we've strategically positioned our company to do this. So, um, you know, just as an aside, my husband um, was a professional ice hockey player and that's also memorable too. So um, we really early on thought that it would be a good way to position ourselves with him as the front person because, you know, it, it has that like allure a little bit to it. And it also has the memorability, memorability, uh, being memorable. <laughs> um, uh, so that brokers would remember, cause at the end of the day, whatever you do, you need to come across as being memorable and trustworthy. And that those are the two things that really, um, can take a relationship really far and create the, that bond to get you on the short list of the deals. Because you don't want to get the on-market deals. Everyone's overbidding for those deals. You're you're going to be spinning your wheels and talking about like making sure that your time is well spent. At the end of the day, you're trying to get more time, not spend more time. So um, to get on their short list, um, we wanted to be memorable in their eyes. And my husband was actually a huge proponent for pushing me forward. And he was like, I really don't want to be the you know, the figurehead of the company, I want you to be because that is going to stand out more than me coming forward. And I think it has boded well um, to that. So I make it a point to always encourage more women into this space. I don't feel threatened by it at all. I think it would be amazing if we could have more women in multifamily and, um, you know, we could do deals together. And that's ultimately one of my goals as well. That is, I love that. I love the idea of using memorability as a strategic part of your business. And I, I feel like there probably aren't that many people who are thinking about their business from that perspective. Um, you're thinking about where you find deals, sure, and where you want to invest and, and what your strategy is with the, the asset. But thinking about yourself and, and how you position yourself strategically too that's brilliant. I think I was actually a, a Marine in a past life. So I was an active duty Marine for four years and then used my GI Bill to get an MBA. And when I was interviewing for positions during that MBA process, memorability was huge. I, I always joke that I think the internship offers and the full-time offers I got after the MBA in large part came because they were like, oh, Megan, the female Marine, we remember her, we remember her resume, we remember talking with her. And some of my interviews were people just wanting to ask me questions about being a female in the Marine Corps. And I kept thinking, are we going to get to the part about, you know, this, this company and this business, but memorability and the, the chance to talk with someone um, who's maybe different and unique from you in some ways, it can stand out in a big way. Josiah, what do you think about that? No, I think it's, to me, um, connecting with investors, selling them on your project is about, it's, it's sales, right? And so you got to be able to market yourself and connect with people. And Ashley, as you said, you start off with building trust and you can't build trust with someone if they won't answer your phone call or give you the time of day. So st standing out, sticking out somehow is the name of the game. And I, you know, I would always like back when I, I taught finance on the college level for two years. I would always tell my students, when you're applying for a job, everyone is going about applying for this job by submitting a resume and waiting. Okay. Do something besides that. Go around, go around the gatekeeper, be creative and do something to stand out. Like, um, you know, go to the business and walk in and introduce yourself to the person at the front desk and say, Hey, I'm dropping off my resume, but I wanted to meet you here's who I am. Here's, here's who my family is. This is what I do. Do something different than everyone else, right? So if you're a woman in a male dominated industry, you're already going to stand out, you know? And then if you talk about the fact that your husband's a professional hockey player, well, that they're going to remember you for that as well. And there's like so many different ways. So like for me, the challenge is, okay, I'm a white male in a white male dominated industry. How do <laughs> I stand out? So I got to figure out a way to differentiate myself. So 
but you got to always play to your strengths. And I, I love, I love what you're doing there um, and how you're going about doing this. You're obviously doing very well, Ashley, because you've been able to acquire a number of these deals. And if you don't mind, share, share some information about this deal. Uh, this first deal you did on the GP side, like if you don't mind, share with us like, like the purchase price, your value add strategy, what you spent. And then if you did a refinance and were able to pull money back out and pay investors back and that kind of thing. So we purchased the property around 10 million. It's 124 units and it was a value add strategy. Um, we had uh, with the fire burnt down building, uh, we had a CapEx around 2 million um, inclusive of that building, as well as we also had a huge plumbing uh, uh, pipe burst where uh, that affected uh, several units and we had to move some people out. So um, that property, um, the value add strategy was uh, initially projected over two years and with a refi in year three, we just reached the two-year anniversary of that property um, uh, early in July. So um, the, the property um, has performed very well and we can actually push the rents further than what we initially projected. So um, in terms of the level upgrades we initially planned, we planned more of a basic level upgrade and we got those pre premiums pretty easily. We increased the occupancy. So one of the things on the value-add strategy is oftentimes you have to deplete the occupancy and then rebuild the occupancy. So in another property, for example, that I have, it's 225 units in Amarillo, Texas, we had to deplete the occupancy and we did um, to 64.4% in August of last year. And now we have rebuilt it and we are at 88.44% today. Uh, the market occupancy, stabilized market occupancy is around 87%. Um, but I think we can get this property to 92%. So we're continuing to push. And that was a, I'm changing over deals, but just to kind of give a reference there, that was a three-year value-add strategy with a refi in year four. And we were able to um, do the entire value-add strategy in one year. Um, so we are looking, um, now that we have the occupancy almost um, above 90%, we are looking to refi because the agency lenders, um, you need a minimum of 90 and 90, it's called. So 90% occupancy for 90 days to qualify for those government rates, um, which are obviously the most favorable in multifamily. So in all real estate, um, it always comes down to cost of capital. So however you can lower your cost of capital, whether it's debt or equity, that is how you're going to be most advantageous. That's how you're going to be able to offer more than your competitors. And you're going to be able to execute um, your strategy better than everyone else. Um, so the first deal, going back to that, we haven't refied yet because we're still trying to push the, um, the income up. So it just... For anyone who's new to multifamily, uh, the evaluations both on a sales side and refi side are dependent on the calculation of the NOI with the cap rate. So the cap rate in, an air, in a specific market varies not only by market, but it also varies by um, class property. Um, so what you're trying to do is you're trying to increase the income, decrease the expenses, or a combination of the two. Um, and that will ultimately get you a higher evaluation, whether you sell, sell or refi. That's awesome. So, and I think that's something that so many people who get started in real estate, maybe on the smaller side, like Josiah and I did with single families or twos and fours, um, it doesn't take long for, as you start to dig in and understand multifamily to see the benefits um, from the financing side and, and the options that you have with a larger building, even just once you get, you know, the bigger you get, I think that the easier it can, can be. But even if you're getting into a 10 or 12 or 16 or 20 unit, now it's valued based on what that property makes and not based on comparable sales. And so that's, that's huge. And that just flips so many things in the game and in how you can create value um, more proactively than maybe you can in some situations with twos and fours. Um, but Ashley, you started talking about financing a little bit. So maybe you could give us a little bit of information about kind of how you finance these deals or, or what you needed to know to start working with banks um, on financing the multifamilies. I guess, what are some things that might be different for folks who haven't done multifamily yet, but have some familiarity with conventional lending? 
Um, so on multifamily, it's, it's really interesting and kind of crazy, but it's um, interesting to me that the larger the deal, it's actually easier to get the financing than on smaller deals. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, if you're doing a, you know, a $20 million deal, let's say, that's going to be a lot easier than if you're doing a $200,000 residential property. And um, at first I was like, no way, that's just, you know, gossip. Like it's a rumor. It's (laughs) it's not true. But in reality, that is the case. So um, first of all, they're non-recourse loans. They have recourse loans too, but what you're ultimately trying to achieve is a non-recourse loan. Um, in terms of your loan rates, loan rates right now are just incredible on the commercial side. I mean, we're seeing low 3%. And in all honesty, on the HUDs, it's going into the twos. Um, and some of the agencies are even dipping into the twos as well, depending on the market and the asset. Um, with respect to financing, this is something that I have a familiarity familiarity with and also understand conceptually how it interplays into our overall business strategy. But going back to what I was saying on knowing your strengths and it being a team sport and partnering with people who know more than you on other topics so you can be an expert in your topic. I actually partner with someone on the the brokerage side of things for the, the funding. So that way you know, I can stay focused on acquisitions and asset management. I do know though, um, you know, what we're trying to achieve, how that affects our, our returns and um, trying to get certain deals. So for example, on the deal we have under contract, we have a 10-year term and it's three years of interest only. And one of the non-recourse, of course, and it's assumable. So that's another thing that is different than, um, you know, maybe the residential side. Um, which is that we can sell the property after five years and someone can assume it with five years left on the loan before they either have to refi out of it or, you know, do a balloon payment. Um, So in terms of um, just the creativity on the debt side of things, there's a lot of creativity on the debt side. Um, There is a qualifier on agency lending where you are um, based off of net worth and liquidity. There's all types of hurdles that you have to reach to uh, qualify and the property has to be a stabilized asset, as I mentioned before. So over 90% occupancy, it has to have a certain debt coverage ratio as well. There's another option too. So those were the most favorable. Those are the loan terms that you're seeking. Um, Typically in value adds, you can't get those because normally they're underperforming for some reason. In some cases you can, in our case we can because the occupancy is over 90%. So we're very fortunate to be able to get an agency loan on this property. But the other option is bridge lending and um, mezzanine type loans. So it's at a higher rate, um, but this most of the time they'll cover your construction costs. You can have it wrapped in so you don't have to raise it. Um, and they're shorter term loans. So that's why people, if anyone's familiar with a Burr strategy, this is the Burr strategy, you know, on steroids. You're taking literally a distressed asset. You're either optimizing it through rehab, better management, better operations, and then you are refinancing out to ideally an agency loan um, so you can, you know, get a better cash flow on the back end. Um, And then also pull equity out your initial equity investment, and you can return that to your investors. So there's a lot of different options. And then on the equity side, there's a lot of different options too. You can either syndicate, you can partner, you can JV, you can do pref equity where you partner with family office and maybe they provide a small portion of the equity needed and they get a preferred return, which um, comes before your, you know, your passive investors, your individual investors. The, the amazing thing about multifamily is it's not so rigid as residential. Um, so it, even down to the contracts, the contracts, you can just literally create whatever kind of contract you want. There's no standard state contract that everyone uses. There's no offering process that, I mean, there's a generally accepted uh, process, but in terms of how you want to structure the deal, how you want to structure the closing, the terms, it is the wild, wild west, so to speak. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you talked about all the different ways that you can um, structure both debt and equity. And that's a lot maybe for some of us who are are newer, some of the listeners who are newer to this. Um, Maybe could you go into a little bit of detail about how your deal, your GP, the 124 units was structured? So we did a bridge loan. The property wasn't stabilized. So we started off with a bridge loan to refi out into agency. That's the ultimate goal. Um, in terms of that, that's the sourcing of the debt. And they covered our CapEx. So in terms of um, the, the structure of the loan, it was a three-year interest-only, five-year term. And it allowed us to have interest only off of what we used, meaning that if we had deployed the CapEx strategy in year two versus year one, when we pull off of that line, it accrues interest as opposed to the interest being all up front, whether we use this CapEx money or not. That's something you obviously want to look out for. And then in terms of the equity side, we syndicated the deal. So that was a 506C offering, a Reg D. So there's typically two offerings that people go to. There's more offerings, but that's for a whole other show. And to be honest with you, that's above my pay grade to talk about. But (laughs) there are two general offerings in syndication, 506C and 506B. 506B are for sophisticated investors and accredited investors can come in as well. Um, And then 506C is accredited investors only and allows you to advertise Um, two of the deals I've done have been 506C and one has been a 506B. Um, In my personal opinion, I always prefer 506C um, because at the end of the day, you're working with accredited investors. It's another safeguard in place that you're not going to get yourself in trouble for advertising or having someone who shouldn't be in the deal. The the accredited investors in it of itself has a built-in... responsibility or onus on the investor that they will take the information, either consult with their financial advisor or they're savvy enough to make their own financial decisions. When you're working with sophisticated investors, you really need to vet the process. And on a 506B, you have to show that you have a pre-established relationship with that person. So there's just a lot of gray areas. And I'm a black and white type person when it comes to liability exposure. So I would just rather be in one shop versus the other. So in that particular deal, we did a 506C. Very cool. How did you uh, structure this bridge loan? Was it 90% loan to cost and then they fund your renovations or how, how was, what did that look like? Um, so that is an excellent question. Um, I believe we ended at 82% of uh, loan to value. And then we got a supplemental on the CapEx where they funded 100%. Nice. Okay. And what so, was what was the interest rate on that? Just curious. I know that was several years ago. Was that, that years ago? Years ago. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was over a five. I can't okay. remember exactly in all honesty. And um, I don't actively... Uh, manage that property anymore. I managed it through the value add process, and then my partners took it back because it was the value add process was done. Um, so they're sure. managing the day to day now. So, so for someone that's going through this process for the first time, what's the best way to find good bridge bridge lenders and to source the the debt on the you know agency side, like? Do you have a broker that helps you with all that? Or is it just networking? Or how, how have you gone about finding those connections? Um, there are so many brokers out there um, that you can contact. And it's also a relationship-based business on the brokerage side as well. And then also too, in terms of the brokers um, that you want to work with, um, So brokers, the way it works when you structure your deals is that when you send them all of the underwriting, they put it out and they could get back, you know, five, five different bids, um, saying, you know, this is how we can fund it and this is how we can structure it. And you want a broker who's going to fight for you to get you the best loan terms. So in the beginning, the exposure that you have is you're not getting the best loan terms because of the fact that you're not giving them enough volume. So they're not going to waste their time trying to get you, you know, another 10th of a percent because it really doesn't matter to them. It matters to you greatly, but it doesn't really affect them that much. 
I would say a good test to see whether or not um, this broker is someone that you want to work with is while you're underwriting deals and you're getting familiar with the whole loan process is that you send them your underwriting, even if you're not invest in final and say, Hey, I'm looking at this deal. Can you tell me what type of loan I can get? What type of terms I could get? Um, so I can use it in my modeling. So I know, cause you're going to need to know that information to know how much to offer. If they're not willing to do that and to do it often, cause in all honesty, the conversion rate on offers versus accepted offers is extremely low. It's the, probably the lowest in all the different asset classes. Um, if your broker is not willing to do that for you, move on because, um, that is an early sign of someone who is not going to, put in the time when they when you actually have a deal under contract and you need someone to fight for the best terms for you. I would say too that it does, doesn't always come down to having... Um, the, I mean, people are probably going to like knock me for saying this, but it also doesn't always come down to the best uh, interest rate um, because there's so many different variables. There's the terms and then also too, there's... Um, the relationship with a broker. So on multifamily, unlike residential real estate, multifamily has a seller's broker, but it doesn't have a buyer's broker. So you're really, you know, some people make the argument that you should just go direct because, um, you know, you can save the fee for the broker that's, you know, charging you the fee. But at the end of the day, our, our uh, opinion on this is that a mortgage broker, especially one who has your best interest at in mind, is also going to go through your underwriting and see where you have exposure and help you tighten up your underwriting and educate you in the process. They're also too going to be telling you, okay, this market... Freddie and Fannie are really soft on this market right now. So, you know, if you're going to continue to underwrite, like you should underwrite a 70 LTV right now, not, you know, a 7580. Or um, they might say, for example, they're, they're going to tell you like all the changes right now with COVID. There's so many changes to the terms and conditions from government all the way down to bridge. And a good broker is going to tell you that as soon as they get the information and help you be more advantageous in your offers so you don't end up with an offer based off of last month's terms and conditions that they had. So I would just really try to develop those relationships as much as you're developing broker relationships on the real estate transactional side. Um, because at the end of the day, they all help you. Yeah, that's awesome. So much value there. Um, yeah, I, it seems like having the right broker is like, you know, the right financing broker is a big piece of this whole thing, just like management or, you know, having brokers that are actually bringing you deals for sale. Um, so let, let's, I, let, I can, let, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I just want to add one other thing. So my, um, my broker, he, um, he is, um, also, he partners with me on the deals, mm. which is very advantageous too. So as opposed to it being a transactional relationship, it is a, um, it is more of a partnership. So he's not only looking out for us, he's looking out for himself too, mm. because, um, the way in which we've structured it, it's a partnership. Um, so that is something, um, and you know, I'm sure you can reach out to him and ask if he's willing to partner with you too. Um, <laughs> so I don't mind giving his name if, if that's okay with you guys. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. His name's Mark Rios and he's with Trisource. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just something that I would say that when you develop a relationship with a broker and they're willing to do, to go to that level, like I said before, it's not always about the, the numbers at the end of the day, because, you know, someone like that, they're going to push for the numbers too, but they're going to look out for you every step of the deal, even past close, where if you have a tr transactional relationship with a broker, they just want to get you to close and then they're yeah. on to the next person. Yeah, Totally. And that was the whole problem with the 2008 thing, right? Like the, the brokers were making the bad loans and selling them off to the secondary market. They didn't have to hold the bag when- No recourse. The crap hit the fan, right? So yep. yeah, I, I love how you've aligned your, you know, the long-term incentives of being successful with the investment with the broker that's helping you get the financing closed. So, um, so Ashley, like we could, we could talk multifamily for hours and like this is, this has all been like very value packed information. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Let's, let's, you so let's, much. Yeah. We're so happy to have you. Like let's shift gears and talk about 
some things you have going on. I know you're very involved in the multifamily world. Some some things you have going on outside of just doing deals. And um, and yeah, then we'll we'll hit that and then we'll wrap the episode up. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Like, tell us. Um, you mentioned working on a book, and I think you're involved yep. in some some investor groups and whatnot. Anything you're willing to share there? Yeah. So I'm a. Uh a very active member in the real estate investor community. I think we touched on it earlier about wanting to bring women into real estate and helping women create financial freedom on their own terms. So um, women outlive men uh, six to eight years on average. And over that course... Hey. No, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, a, I'm very aware of this. That's why I'm so motivated. I'm more motivated. I got to be more motivated. I'll do you guys. <laughs> so I got less time. <laughs> during that time, um, in terms of the average cost of living, when you get older, it's uh, equates to around two hundred and eighty to three hundred and thirty thousand dollars. That's the translation, and unfortunately, that burden is not something that falls just exclusively on women's shoulders. It can fall on men's shoulders as well it does not discriminate. And because it doesn't discriminate, this is a problem that we all face. And having women, men, anyone, it doesn't matter, you know, what color of the rainbow (laughs) spectrum you're on. um, It's really important that we create um, knowledge to help people be financially free. And we believe one way in which you can do that is through the power of real estate. So we spend a lot of time providing knowledge and support to women and a lot of education. We, especially with COVID right now, we're doing a lot of virtual events. Basically, almost every day of the week, we have something in the evening that someone can tune into. It's all free. You can join the Facebook community. You can follow the real estate investor on Instagram as well. And that is um, an opportunity. Just in all honesty, I have a meetup group when we were meeting face-to-face and Now it's transitioned to virtually. And I have five to six men every single month join for (laughs) our events. So we have some really powerhouse women speakers. They cover all different types of topics, all different asset classes. Tonight, we're doing one on entity structuring. So that is on formation of business, how to protect yourself, how to limit liability. These are all things that, you know, are all parts of the real estate business. And maybe not as easy to access information. So that's, you know, very advantageous to have those discussions as well. In terms of some other things I have going on, I'm very excited that at uh, August 31st, I will be launching my book. Um, And that is a book that the Real Estate Investor Publishing Company will be putting out. It's their first book in their publishing company. So I'm really proud about this book, and it features 19 other women real estate investors who've inspired me and influenced my life in some shape or fashion. And they are on all different parts of their journey. So some people are new to real estate and some people are, you know, like way past me. Um, But no matter what, I look up to all of these women and I think they are really crushing the game and they add a lot of value to my life. So I wanted to share their story with all of you too. So I am very excited about that. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you. So yeah, those are the two things that are keeping me busy uh, right now. In addition to obviously acquiring this uh, property in Houston. That's awesome. It sounds like exciting times and we're very excited to continue to follow you on the journey. Is there any place where um, folks can follow you to, to keep seeing what you're up to? Yes, you can follow me on Instagram at Bad Ash Investor. Um, I have other sites as well, and you'll see them linked off of Bad Ash Investor, but you can follow me there. That's the easiest. And if you want to see any of the company websites, you can go to badashinvestor.com and you can link from there. Bad Ash Investor. I love that. <laughs> Sweet. Okay, so before we wrap up, I want to hit you with uh, a question. And I'm always interested in, in our guest response on this. And this is something we're going to ask everybody, okay? Okay, I'm ready. If, if I were to hand you a $10 million check mm-hmm. and say, Ashley, you can't be involved with real estate anymore. You don't, have, you don't own any real estate. Oh you, my can't, you can't ever mess with real estate again. Would you take the $10 million and go do something else? Or would you turn it down? 
I would turn it down because I can do more with real estate. Boom. I love it. I love Mic it. Mic drop. Mic drop. <laughs> uh, I asked this question to uh, these two investors I was talking to one time. One said he would turn it down. No questions asked. And the other guy's like, I'll take the money and run. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's so interesting in hearing people's responses. But so why is that? Why would, why would you turn the money down? Um, I would turn the money down because first of all, real estate has unlimited potential, um, A. And B, what, what would I invest with it? Um, <laughs> so like if I can't invest in real estate, um, yeah, I know there's other investments. And um, I mean, one thing that's interesting to me right now is investing in businesses. I think the 2008 crash, you know, we look back and everyone says we should have bought more real estate, but I think everyone's going to look back at this and say, we should have bought more businesses. I think businesses are probably <laughs> going to be um, literally being given away for free because there's a lot of mom and pop businesses that didn't really know how to get into the social media and marketing side. And then ultimately that probably didn't help during this recession that there was no virtual presence and, mm. you know, they didn't know how to keep their business running when we're in this COVID situation. So, um, I don't think I would necessarily get into the restaurant or hospitality industries, um, <laughs> ever in all honesty, but, um, in terms of, other businesses, I think there's a lot of businesses that are primed for the picking. So you could, you could talk about that. But I think real estate has the ability to be set up, even though you're actively involved in a passive manner. And I don't know if businesses, I, I'm not well-versed enough to know indus other industries where you can have that set up like that. And I think also too, businesses have to stay with the times and real estate, it's, it's, it's land and they're not making any more of it. So they're making more businesses. You'll always have other competition. But in, in land, if you speak about land, I mean, besides, you know, places like Dubai and, you know, they joke around about it in Toronto of literally filling the water with dirt to build more land up from the water. Like, <laughs> you know, they're building the world over in Dubai where you can, you know, buy real estate in Dubai, but they're marrying it to look like different countries and stuff like that. It's actually very fascinating. Um, so they're creating land out of water. Um, you're going to run out of that. Um, so, and I don't necessarily think that's sustainable long-term. So I, I mean, that's why I would, yeah. I would go with real estate. I love that. I think that's a perfect way to wrap up today. Um, reminding everybody of the power of real estate and why all three of us are pretty infatuated with it. And I'm sure the listeners are as well. Uh, this has been an excellent episode, Ashley. Thank you so much for sharing with us, for really digging into some details and telling us your story. Uh, we can't wait to continue watching what you do. And thank you again for being here. Thank you both so much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Ashley. We'll have to have you back sometime soon to tell us about this next deal you're working on. Awesome. Sounds Absolutely. great. Thanks for tuning in to Multifamily Mavericks. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave us a rating and review, and share it with your friends. It helps us grow, which helps us find great guests, which in turn helps you grow. And don't forget to connect with us on LinkedIn or on Instagram at Multifamily Mavericks, at Daily Real Estate Investor, at Part-Time Empire. Join us next time to keep learning the multifamily game